Welcome, this is the Sales IQ Podcast. My name is Luigi Prestonenzi, and I'm on a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be. Each week, we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe, so we can help you master the art of selling. So today we have one of the world's leading B2B sales enablement experts, author of two best-selling books, Strategic Coach and Sales Process Improvement Strategist. Please welcome Mary Lou Tyler to the show. Well, thank you. Very nice to be here. Oh, fantastic. Um, so we're going to spend some time talking about how to define your target customer so that you can get more out of your prospecting efforts and some strategies that we can deploy to engage with our target persona. However, before mm-hmm. we get into things, I would love to learn a little bit more about you, Mary Lou, and how you started in the world of sales. Well, like not unlike a lot of people, when I started, I came up through the College of Engineering. I was a computer scientist, and I started my career in fight, flight simulation and operating system design wow. so for the aeronautics industry. So <laughs> very far removed from being a salesperson, but the bottom line was, even in those days, I was always put into client-facing uh, roles because I could translate what the client's needs were into a design specification for programmers and for the programming staff. So I very quickly went into a support role, leading me to start supporting the salespeople. Well, I grew up in the era where we were still converting analog to digital. So we had very disruptive products. I came into work one day and my boss was there and I noticed it was noticeably quiet. And as I was looking around, I asked, where are the salespeople? And he said, you know, Mary Lou, this stuff is so hard to sell that we have fired all the salespeople and now all the system engineering people are going to be in sales. So welcome to the world of sales. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought my life was over. But then I realized (laughs) I have... I'm an engineer, I think in process. There's got to be a process or some repeatable, reproducible portion of the selling thing that I could put together for my prospecting. So that's what I did. I set out to find those tasks that we could repeat and do so authentically, even back then, because we were more face-to-face. There was no internet. There was no Microsoft. There wasn't even an Apple computer yet (laughs) when I first started selling. So I really focused on how could I get in front of more people and how could I leverage the tools I had in order to do that, which was direct mail and the phone. So I became an expert in those two areas and the rest is history. So I've been studying lead generation, demand generation for going on 32 years now. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And and so you started as an engineer. So tell me, um, I heard that little lump when you said when you got onto that floor and they said, it's time for you to get out in sales. At the time, <laughs> what was your view on sales or, or you know, the term well, salesperson? Well, you know, the, the folks that I sold for were coming from the large PBX systems. Yeah. They had Rolex watches. They had $3,000 suits. They <laughs> drove nice cars. So I thought sales was all about going out to dinner and having great <laughs> meetings with people and, you know, golf, you know, that kind of relationship, yeah. sort of building your Rolodex that way. I never really watched them actually sell anything because by the time I was brought in, they were at already 
already marched down the pipeline to the point where they had some type of commitment from the client. Yep. So I never saw what was going on up top of funnel or middle of funnel. And it was a huge, gigantic mystery <laughs> as to how that worked. And I was given the cities and government accounts. So our average deal size was about 500000 to over a million each wow. deal. Long sales cycles, complex accounts, strategic selling-ish type of uh, sales. So I had no idea what I was doing. None. Yeah. That's insane. So the, you, you, long sales. These are all the, you know, the scary words from a salesperson. Long sales cycle, <laughs> complex deals, some technical, you yeah. know, technical nous you need to have. So what were right. what, what were some of the things that you needed to do or that you did do to become? Well, I first figured out, you know, I, I figured out what is the total addressable market. I mean, what is this market within my accounts? Are there certain departments? Are there certain areas of the company that focus on what I was selling? You know, so I really started segmenting from day one. Who do I serve? I was trying to answer that question. And we were net new. So I wasn't doing any type of cross sell, upsell, existing accounts. It was all new logos. So I knew I had to either introduce new clients to existing products or new clients to new products. So once I got that quadrant sort of figured out, then I started looking at are these accounts segmented? Do my best clients that I had in the database map into any type of tier? So I yeah. started looking at that. So I analyzed all the data that we had, which wasn't a lot, but it was enough to start giving me that roadmap to look at the accounts, the ideal account profiles. And then I headed right towards the people. Who are yeah. the people in these accounts that I can somehow organize do they speak a different language amongst the different departments? Do I have to be able to have knowledge in all these different areas or were there key people or influencers, either direct or indirect, that could help me get in the door so that when we it was time to meet with the decision maker, I was ready to do so. So, and really, you know, so it started with the understanding the market, understanding what quadrants in the market that I serve best, figuring out the ideal mix of touches at the time, which was mostly direct mail, mostly phone, and then looking at the account segments to see if I had, in my case, short, medium, and long cycles, or did I have accounts that were all long cycled with different close ratios, depending on what with the way they bought the product, you know, how they bought it versus was it premise-based? Was it a service-based offering? So I started really focusing on segment, 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 even back yeah. then. That's quite amazing. And um, because the things that you're talking about, I mean, you mentioned, you know, touch points, which is the, the modern day era of cadence. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that little process that you mapped out for us is not too dissimilar to modern day sales. Um, it, it isn't. Yeah, you know, it's very, very similar. So how did you, was there, did you have somebody that was helping you sort of coach you through that or was this all self-taught? No, this was, you know, it's sink or, it was sink or swim. Yeah. I mean, you were <laughs> for your life. You got a territory, maybe. I mean, I had a vertical, so that was good because I was able to hone in on the vertical aspect. It wasn't the wild, wild west or anything like that. But, you know, no, they waved a magic wand over your head and said, you're in sales. Wow. Yeah, I remember that day. I remember the day that I jumped into sales. (laughs) I didn't know anything, you know. 
<laughs> I just right. had a phone book yeah. and they didn't even give me a mobile phone. We didn't even have mo- mobile phones in. So <laughs> I remember. Yeah, so you know, I don't sales process that's yeah. I, I mean i relied on process because that's what i knew yeah i remember getting a rolodex and when i got a rolodex i was so excited i'm like look at all these leads because <laughs> there's heaps of business cards in there um so is that what inspired you to write you know predictable revenue and then predictable prospecting well it was definitely i could tell and i heard from so many people because i was a consultant i've been a consultant since 1985 now wow. it's been a while yeah so i i installed large outbound lead generation call centers so bose yeah. was a client mastercard large clients three to five year projects to install just the hardware <laughs> you know <laughs> so i got an understanding firsthand because these were large 250 agents and above yeah and what they were trying to do and how they were trying to sell. And I noticed that the more that we can get it into a pattern, the more that we can, at that time, minimize, there wasn't even a mouse. So it was minimizing the data entry by giving them function keys and hotkeys and things so they can wrap up calls more quickly. When we started getting into this rhythmic approach of the selling conversation, things really worked. And we were able to build waterfalls, what I call waterfalls, which is how many touches yield eventually how many opportunities which yield how many close one we were able to get it for different verticals for different nuances of accounts and there was a formula starting there that really worked so we we looked at all the conversion rates i mean direct mail was really the precursor to what we're all doing today because it was scientific and you couldn't screw up i mean it was it was hard copy stick a stamp on and pay money to send someone a message so there was a lot more thought going into how to increase those conversion rates and changing words or figuring out the headers just little things like that we put a lot of time and effort into and all of those things are are here now with emails and social and linkedin and using video i mean it's all Mm. based on what happened then in demand gen yeah and I like that term waterfalls, and I'm going to have to pick your brain on that. So, and f- obviously, you know, there's a lot of um, now methods where we can, as sales professionals and salespeople, use to prospect. Um, what, from your perspective, what's your definition of prospecting? Well, for me, it's starting conversations with people we don't know. With the whole idea of finding someone in the organization or in the household who will let us in, who will open up their door and let us in. Now, what happens once we get there, there's a whole variety of twists and turns that can happen. But what we're really trying to do is in some cases, like I showed you, I told you about that quadrant of net new, if we're new clients with new products, we're trying to build awareness, we're trying to educate and eventually get our foot in the door versus an existing product sold to new new clients where we're really yep. focusing on getting in the door. So there's a lot of different approaches, but it all comes down to having that first conversation. That's what we're that's what we're focused on. Yeah, fantastic. And one of the things I liked in your book was account based sales development. Um, Are you able Mm -hmm. to, can you please break that down for us? 
It's really based on, which is what's really interesting is predictable revenue on pages 99 to 101 talk about a 315 process. And a 315 process is figuring out the people within the account. So we're, we're usually three to five plus people yep. that are going to be either indirectly influencing the decision or directly influencing the decision or the decision maker himself or herself. So we have these people and they all are involved at various levels, but they're also, we meet them at different relative positions in the pipeline. Mm. So in account-based selling, what we're trying to do is figure out who's going to let me in Who's going to champion me? Who is going to listen to me to see if this is a good fit? And then who is going to be involved to determine should we work together? Which is a beautiful process that you can actually put into play at relative positions in the pipeline. I mean, we call them, the intro call would be a find the right person to verify that you have the right people. So you're mapping within the organization. You know, there's a lot of people who say, hey, LinkedIn does that for you now. You don't have to worry about it. I will tell you in these larger accounts, I had a client Gartner here in, um, in the States, they ended up coming up with 35 different marketing roles that were good personas for them. How in the world could you figure that out just by looking at titles on LinkedIn? You can't. You can't. You've got to map in and you've got to figure out who's doing what. And it's all based on those personas. What is their day in the life like? What are they doing? Where are they struggling with the activities and tasks that they are supposed to complete, complete well, complete with quality, and complete in a timely manner? And how does your product bridge that gap for them so that they can do these things they need to do. So account-based selling is looking at all these people, figuring out how they would be working with your product and inviting them to understand more about how you can serve them. Yeah. And also to determine if you're a good fit or not. You know, we're, we're big on the fit. We want to make sure that we are not wasting our time by getting stuck at the wrong level or talking to the wrong people. So we do a lot of work with account-based selling in order to find that custom account, custom persona uh, that we really want to focus on to advance that sale for us. Okay. So this is obviously activity that you would do before entering an opportunity or is this something that you do during the opportunity? This is all pre-opportunity. Pre-op. Okay. So this is the research phase. So that we're in the research phase. We've got our ideal account. Um, so take us back a step because you know, I've got so many notes here, um, but <laughs> if we can go back a step um, and you also spoke about this in your book, um, developing an ideal account profile. Firstly, how important is it that we develop an ideal account? And secondly, can you walk us through what we must do to start this process? And you've already sort of started that. Mm-hmm. In the answer, the short answer is everyone thinks, or a lot of people think that we can serve a huge market. But when you look at the actual market itself, you have the total addressable market, but within that market, there is a serviceable market that we can reach via whatever channels of communication we have available to us, calling, emailing, social, yep. direct mail, video, whatever it is. So first and foremost, we have to come up with a subset of the ideal 
market that, that we can yeah. service realistically. And then from there, what we look at in the book we talk about, there are the different areas of you know the firmographic, the operational, all the ways that we can further quantify the type of account that's going to reduce the lag for us and increase the likelihood of closing. So we want high revenue potential, high likelihood of closing, and high lifetime value accounts to go after when you're building an outbound or outreach type of program. So obviously, we have just segmented the heck out of (laughs) our ideal accounts, and we use the ideal account profile to help us really quantify what is this addressable market that I can serve not mm. the entire universe, but those accounts, I call them the whales, those yeah. accounts that are going to be the high revenue and high potential for us, but also that we can be more systematic and mechanize that sales conversation as we move through the pipeline. Yeah, that's awesome. And this is not like if you're a salesperson that's just jumping into an account you know, I need to crush it, need to get my quota, I'm just going to go attack everyone I can. This is not a strategy mm-hmm. for those sort of people, is it? Correct. This okay. is more for the person who is focused on maximizing his return on effort. Yeah. In order to do that, we have to mechanize those areas of the pipeline that make sense and leverage yeah. technology where we can so that we have more human selling time. Yeah, You can't do that by going after any type of account. They have to have similar characteristics so that you can bundle the sales conversations where you need to and advance that sale a lot quicker. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, so we've developed an account profile and, and you mentioned things from your book, which I really enjoyed, the firmographic and the operational. I think there was another step as well as part of that process. Situational. Um, that's yeah. it. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> um, so we've developed the account profile. We've, we've gone through and we've, we've, we've segmented, um, as you said, segmented, mm-hmm. segmented, segmented. Um, right. Now we have to create a prospect persona. Given mm-hmm. the fact, as you mentioned, that you know, I think before we started this conversation or the recording, um, I think the data coming out from Gartner is 6.7 and I, I saw something else as 8 to 10 um, people in an enterprise sale that are involved during the buying process. Um, do we create one persona or multiple personas for accounts that we're targeting? You create multiple personas, Mul- but it, you also reserve the right to create Personas for the people with whom you're going to have the longest sales conversations. So, for example, the gatekeeper of a decision maker may not get a persona developed Mm. because that person is probably not going to be put in any type of automated sequence to reach out. Um, But she is or he is important to get your foot in the door. So you do want to polish up your sales conversations to be able to uh, craft a strong reason why she should put you on the calendar. The other thing to think about, and the book talks about this a lot, is think about the people in like a bullseye format. In the center is your decision maker. The next ring out are the people who have his ear. They directly influence him and directly influence your ability to either get in the door or to continue your conversation to advance that lead. 
Then the last level out are the indirect influencers, the warmer referrals who you're going to need, like the gatekeeper, to be able to help you understand what you need to prepare in order to have a meaningful conversation with the decision maker. You know, get all your I's dotted and your T's crossed because you want to make sure that you're prepared and ready to go and you don't bungle that call because you weren't prepared. Mm. So these people all are... Actually, the bullseye, we call it the influence map in the book, that is what differentiates and separates a sales persona from a marketing persona. People tend to grab marketing's personas and say, we got our personas, Mary. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't. Marketing is doing a one-to-many conversation. We are doing a one-to-one conversation. There are almost nine different differentiators between a sales prospect persona and a marketing prospect persona. So that's, you know, that chapter in the book is, is one who ever is listening to this is like, oh, right. We need to really get detailed on this. That chapter three is yep. going to talk you through how to build a prospecting persona for sales. But I would build one if my intention is that I'm going to have a high number of touch points to that person, then they, I would build a persona for them. They deserve a persona. They have earned the right to have a yep. persona developed because you're going to be touching them more than once. Okay. And should we have, obviously... You know, when entering an opportunity of this nature and there's multiple touch points, should mm-hmm. we be mapping this in some sort of document so that we are clear on, you know, who we're targeting, what is a message that we're trying to convey to that particular person, you know, their, their role in the process? I mean, you've mentioned that with the bullseye, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you recommend having some sort of map to help a professional? I think so, because especially if you're in a larger company doing this, once you start having these conversations, you are learning a plethora of things. One of the most important things you're learning is what conversations to have, when to have them, with whom to have them, and in what order to have them. So if you're able to map this out and track it uh in a CRM or some type of database, then you have that sales conversation canvas that you've actually recorded, which allows you to then, of course, repeat it, reproduce it, amplify it, accentuate it, and also feed it back to marketing because now you've recorded which pain points or value Mm. chains are most important, where they should they be placed in the conversation, and you're building a repeatable process that you can use over and over yep. and over again. Yep. This is amazing. And and for the people that, you know, one of the things I hear often from sales people is, oh, I, haven't got, I haven't got time to, to do this stuff. Um, what type of account and all sort of the size in revenue should we be using these type of tactics with? Is it is it a hundred thousand? Is it fifty? Is it a million? Do you have any guide around that? Well, in predictable revenue, it was ten thousand US yep. was the you know kind of the breaking point. 
Um, but I would say, if you think about the sales conversation, how long does it take you to get from initial conversation to the qualified opportunity? Mm. If it's a 10-minute process, eh, okay, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> yeah. But if you're doing multiple calls, if you're trying to determine, is this a waste of my time, number one, and then the next call is, is is this a good fit? Am I talking to the right point people to make sure that they're going to let me in? And then a subsequent call to that could be, should we work together? If you have that type of environment where there's multiple people involved or you're going further into the pipeline, then you would serve yourself by having this mapping uh, capability that you do. And what I would do is I would map out a few and then you'll be surprised how they all kind of fall mm. into place after that. And when you can leverage the tools now, you know, I had to actually had to draw it out when I was in yeah. sales. You know, when I, but now with all the tools, there's mapping software that actually can help map the organization for you, depending on where you're selling. There are some vendors that already have that put together. So you yeah. have a pretty good idea. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And I'll ask you a little bit later on what are the tools that we can leverage. Mm -hmm. um, so Okay. If we walk through, you know, we've we've segmented. We've now got an ideal account. We've 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 identified the different personas. We've done the research. We've got a clear understanding of you know the the opportunity or the or the actual accounts needs or the some of their their pain points. What are some I suppose strategies that we can employ to start that engagement process? Well, in designing the pipeline itself, you ask yourself. What do I do? With whom? Yep. How? When? <laughs> and that allows you to draw out, like on the back of a napkin, mm. what your pipeline looks like. And what I like to do is I like to park things in stages, and the stages represent the types of conversations that I'm going to have in order to advance the pipeline. Yep. So each stage allows you to have a go-no-go, -no -go, so to speak, which is very common from opportunity to close. You'll see stages in opportunity. We do the same thing at top of funnel. We have yep. a cold working qualifying type of uh, stages. The cold would be people with whom you're initiating conversations, so you've got yeah. to do a lot of work in your value proposition and getting that sense of urgency, get these people to bubble up, self-select, whatever it is that you're doing to get people to raise, you know, a very small finger up in the air. Uh, that's the cold area. Then when it's working, you've identified the right person. And now what you're doing is you're working on getting a fit call done. Yeah. So there's content at each of these stages that are going to help you have those conversations with more predictability. It's a blend of email, of calling, of social, yeah. even direct mail is used again. And you know what? It's going to be dependent on your persona, yeah. how they like to consume information, where they hang out, when they're in the office, when they would be best receiving a phone call, or when they would respond to email. That should guide you as to how you want this rhythm or this cadence of touches to uh, actually be placed into the pipeline. Yeah, awesome. So given your – because you measure a lot of data in, in, in what you do, do you mm -hmm. see um, trends as to what touch point yields the best return? Like is it – you know, phone is still the number one way or is email better, social? Do you mind sharing, um, you know, what you've learned? 
it's really dependent on that persona. Okay. That's why that persona is so, so important. important. As an example, IT people still like to respond via email. They're not necessarily yep. phone people. Marketing people, same thing. They love shiny emails. <laughs> they like to see what you're doing with video. So they're very intrigued and very curious. So those, those systems work. I'm working right now with a company where we're talking to pathologists. Wow. There's no way. We're going to get them via email. Yeah. <laughs> we may get them a little bit, but you know they they may they're better off with LinkedIn or with even the telephone usage yeah. if we catch them at the right time. So as you can see, just from those three examples, different channels work with different personas. You need to get in the mind and the shoes of your persona and how they perform their daily workflow. What are they doing at the office? When are they doing it? What's frustrating them? How does my product bridge that gap? Mm. You're trying to get them to move from this, you know, complacency that life is okay to life is not good. But you need to find out at the same time where they are and how they like to consume information. Yeah. You know, are they reading papers? Are do they want to attend a webinar? Should you be doing executive briefings? Should yeah. you be doing video? All these things you're going to ask yourself as you're developing those personas because that's going to give you the best baseline to start when you're working on these sequences. Okay. And then let the technology take over from there to tell you from a data perspective whether or not your ordering was good or not. Yeah. So just on what you've said from a that you know the personas will help dictate what type of content that they consume is this where mm-hmm. we from an engagement perspective is where we're leading with some form of insight or um is it a feature of our product that's going to bridge the gap or do some you know what are your thoughts on the best way to lead into that first com- that first point because I, I think you mentioned earlier that the, the role of prospecting is to start a conversation with people to let you in. Yep. So right. whether it's email, phone, you know, social, what type of message mm-hmm. do we need to sort of, you know, ignite to get them to let us in? Well, if we go back to the beginning with the who do I serve yeah. and we're looking at those market segments, some of those market segments that I mentioned may be people who are unaware of who we are or how we serve. So our content, our first introduction has got to be something that jolts them from complacency. It's going to be probably something that's pain related and it's fear of loss would probably work or it could be curiosity. What are they talking about? What does this mean? And you don't lead with the product, but you lead with what the product can do for them. Okay. And you, what you're trying to do, you, I'm sure if you've been to a good movie, there's a status quo of life and everybody seems yeah. to be settled in the status quo. And then something <laughs> of it happens, some event happens. Yep. You mentioned even in, at the call, you were in a nice cushy job, but something triggered you to say, mm. I'm going to take a risk. Well, whatever that something is, that's what we want to put into our emails so that we are triggering them and jolting them from their seat, making their eyes go wide as saucers when they see or read what it is that we're telling them. That is what we specialize in atop a funnel is to emotionally get them from life is really not that great, but here's (laughs) how life could be. 
wow, you know. (laughs) And we continue that. We continue that over the course of time to the point where they're salivating to want to have a conversation with us. Yeah, I love that. I love that word. Um, And the trigger event, I know know Tony Hughes talks about that a lot in his book and in a lot of the content that Mm -hmm. he puts out. Um, mm-hmm. but, but just, just going on, on, on what you've just said, um, in relation to, you know, that, that, that trigger event, having like a mass email campaign, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to contextualize that to an individual's needs. So what do we do? Like when we're in the position where marketing's pushing out or saying, look, we've got to, you know push out all these emails to these particular prospects, but we know as sales professionals that, well, hang on a second, I've done my research, that message isn't going to relate to them. Do we sort of take over the process and say, I will start, um, you know, prospecting to my one-to-one or do we do a combination of both marketing emails and my own activity? I like to, if, if we have our segment of accounts that we're working on in that cold status, I like to own that membership. Okay. And But the, the time when marketing takes over is if we have either A, gone through our sequence and that person has not responded, yeah. or B, we started down the conversation path and determined they weren't a good fit now. They may be later, but they're not now. So we physically move them out of the active pipeline into long-term follow-up or nurture. I think marketing can do a great job nurturing accounts, but if it's my account, I want my name at the bottom of that email, (laughs) not theirs. (laughs) So I, you know, so I want to control the account and I tell them when they go out of the active pipeline into the inactive pipeline. And I think marketing best serves working inactive pipeline records. We do better with in the active pipeline records because we're having, even if we do a mass communication, we yeah. are segmenting by persona. So we are doing a one-to-one conversation, mm. but in mass format. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I really like yeah. that active versus inactive because I've always in my career owned my emails i've never had marketing sort of take over that um mm-hmm. i used to give them to marketing to say look these particular bunch of leads they're just they need to be nurtured they need to be followed up they're not ready right now and i and i don't have the capacity to continue to send them sort of monthly emails um mm-hmm. so just going on we we talked about the cadence and and one of the things i keep getting tagged in all these conversations on linkedin around cold calling versus social etc and uh, is cold calling from in your perspective still an effective way to bring in new opportunities into the pipeline i think so and i yeah. i don't think it's called cold calling anymore i think because we have the ability to warm up that chill yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know we we do that yeah. and we we use other channels to 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 warm things up yeah they may not have viewed them but we make the assumption psychologically that since we've already reached out in some capacity or we've sent them something um that we can then start the conversation from that point on so we're in more control as to when we start that conversation but it is warmer now because of the fact that we have enlightened them with something about who we are how we serve why we matter and then when we do get on the phone a lot of times they're I mean, I've been thanked more often than not to find them because they haven't had time to do this research that people are saying, 
buyers are smarter, which they are, but they also are very busy. That doesn't mean they don't want to research what to do and they sometimes just can't get to it. So especially in these larger accounts where there's more working parts, we spend a lot of time in educating educating people on the value of the product and what it can do for them. So these calls are not cold per se, Mm. they're follow-up calls is what I like to call them. Yeah. And I I share that view with you. I I often say that, you know, when when cold calling comes up, so look, for me, cold calling is what I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm calling, you know, the receptionist or the EA and asking who do I speak to in this particular area. Um, and for sure. me, that's a cold outreach versus, you know, what I've... And we call that a mapping call. A mapping call. We call it a... Yeah. We yeah. call it a mapping call because even in predictable revenue, 85% of those calls are fun to do because yeah. you're at the receptionist, you're trying yeah. to look for, like in our case lately, it's been the pathology lab, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, you don't have a pathology lab. Hmm. Well, do you have any labs there at all? <laughs> yeah. You know, so those are fun calls because we learned how to finesse the sale, to talk about our product in yeah. ways to people who have no clue about what we do and to be able to convince them that it's important to transfer us. So they're great calls for that and they're usually very successful and you feel good about it. Yeah, fantastic. Um, And earlier you mentioned tools that enable sales professionals um, and things they can leverage. What what are some of the tools that you'd recommend for a person starting out that's saying, look, I've got a CRM and I've got my phone. Um, Marketing's bought me a database. Um, what are tools that we can actually use to help us during that prospecting phase to bring them into the top of the funnel? I think one of the most important tools that we can use today are these follow-up tools. Because if let's pretend that we have our three personas and we've grouped them into 100 members in, you know, there's 100 marketing people, 100 IT people, and 100 sales people that we want to sell to. And we've put into a sequence of eight touches. If we had to manage that on on our own, which one of my clients, I'm actually making the SDRs manage it this month just so they can (laughs) see the value of tool. (laughs) And they're already pushing back like, yep, I get it. Okay, we need to go to people. But, you know, you're cascading. Think about it. If you start people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, groups of 100, and then you wait to Thursday and do the next series, you're spinning hundreds of plates trying to figure out who got email one. Do I, mm. Am I supposed to call these people today or what? These tools manage that all for you. Fantastic. They reduce your stress tremendously and they maximize your return on effort so that you are having sales conversations, which is what we're supposed to do as salespeople. Yeah, so I definitely get uh, that type of follow-up tool. There's some free ones out there you can try. Just go look for sequence or cadence, those keywords, and start working with those. Then the other thing I would get is if you're really into the phone world is I would look at some way to dial through the computer, have a headset yeah. so you don't sound any. I like clear, crisp voice communication. Um, It could be because I'm a phone Nazi when it comes to (laughs) stuff like that. But um, I think that would be another tool to a dialing tool that'll help you understand that waterfall of touches. How many touches do I need to do? How many people do I need to have conversations with? Which of those yield meaningful conversations? And from those, which of those are doing those scoping calls so that I can Mm. get to opportunity? Yeah. So it's very interesting because I interviewed somebody recently um, and they had conducted a pretty pretty huge study on, on, on you know, 
the cadence process and and they're saying the average touch points to con- to really connect with the right person is between nine to thirteen um, mm-hmm. and so you know that sort of waterfall that you talk about without having some sort of automation to help you in that process it, it, it's it's can be quite difficult as a sales professional so thanks for telling us about some of the different tools and we might put some um, in the show notes and if you've got any recommendation you can let us know now the other thing to tell you is those tools allow us to track best time to call yep best time to email so once again we're focused on maximizing our return on effort and leveraging technology to do that so we can mechanize that sales conversation yeah. these tools are invaluable for that yeah and is this these things that we're talking about obviously a lot of prospecting is you know now for organizations that can have SDRs or inside sales or some sort of mechanism to generate these opportunities for the um, outside guys but mm-hmm. if you haven't got that structure in a business is prospecting something that you know mature experienced sales professionals should be focusing on well it depends i mean like i prospect sell yeah uh, close and service because I'm a entrepreneur, solo entrepreneur. So I do all roles. Yeah. The what we're talking about is the prospecting role. Now you may be doing all three or four. You yeah. may also be doing account management. So I think if you're ever charged with net new, whether it's net new business, you're trying to build market share or you're trying to build product share, prospecting is a great way to get to that result a lot quicker. But Prospecting is very different from closing because it's very habitual. It's a machine. It's an mm. assembly line. You know, it's something that you can't just turn on and turn off and forget to do the next week. It's a consistent, habitual process that you'd be better served if you took two days a week, two-hour blocks, and prospected in those blocks religiously and doing it that way with best time to call in mind and then sending your emails off through an automated system. But you've got to have and set aside the time for prospecting in an uninterrupted block of time. It can't be just, I'll do five here, I'll do 10 this afternoon. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, I know Jeb Blunt talks a lot about, you know, blocking in the morning, having that time block every day and it's got to be fanatical. Mm -hmm. Um, So... What, one of the other things, and I don't, I don't ex- expect to go through all the 12 habits, but can you talk us through a couple of the key habits that, you know, highly successful SDRs exhibit? Okay. Uh, I have some favorites, of course, right. and <laughs> habit stacking, which I don't know if I called it that in the book, but habit stacking is my favorite. Uh, that is what we just talked about. Yep. It's Deciding that you're going to do an activity and you're going to do it repeatedly and it is set at a certain time and you go into that time and you single task the activity. That is by far, if you learn nothing else today, (laughs) that is definitely the way to be successful is if you take one activity, so only do phone calls in this block time or only write emails or send out emails or only do social interactions in that time. That is by far the best way to be successful. 
Okay. That also kind of lines up with time management and scheduling, which are other two that I'm a real stickler on because I think a lot of times we are very easily distracted. Yeah. And you can't be distracted in this role and do a good job. Yep. And it's, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. So I definitely would say that the better you get with time management, the better you get with habit stacking. And habit stacking is very simply, if you're afraid of calling, for example, then do mapping calls first yeah. until you get comfortable on the phone and maybe do one a day. Mm. That's the stack. So yeah. Habit stacking is one ridiculously simple thing that you can do, yeah. <laughs> but do it every day. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, you're an athlete. Eventually, you're going to start to do these things habitually. Like it's very common. You said before when we got on the call, you go out in the morning, you do your run. That's a habit now. Yeah. It wasn't always though, was it? No, it no, may it was... have taken some effort to get started. Yeah. Same thing with prospecting. Take one thing and do it every day and then stack something else on top of that once you feel like you're in a good rhythm with this first thing that you decided to do. Yeah, I love that, that habit stacking concept. All right. And so um, obviously, I know you started as an engineer and you, you, you were you know thrown in the deep end, but was there at one point of your career that you had someone influence you? So I suppose where I'm leading to with this question is biggest influence in your sales career and why? By far, it's been the folks that do copywriting oh, for wow. the advertising age. Um, you know, Jay Abraham, all yeah. the old guys, uh, those, they're my favorite people because they have figured out in a very small space of real estate how to convince someone and persuade someone to take action. Yeah. And that is the, that is the foundation for a good prospector is to have a very brief conversation, but mm. do so in a way that compels somebody to say, how do you do that? Yeah. Or tell me more or, oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> you know, that's our goal. Yeah. And these writers from the like 70s, 80s, you know, in that time frame, they just nailed it. And they yeah. used emotional uh, yeah. writing, those trigger words. I mean, I have on my desk a trigger wheel of all the emotions that we could stir up in people. But based on the persona, there are certain emotions that, you could target mm. with more predictability. Yeah. So I am a real fan of that. That for sure was, you know, was that and Neil Rackham. Yeah, Neil, Neil Rackham. Rackham was, yeah, he's just, yeah, I still have his book on my desk. The field book, yep. the field book and the regular book. <laughs> yeah, I've got his book. I've got yeah. his book. It's behind me actually. So, yeah. And so Neil yeah. Rackman, Jay Abraham, anyone else that like we can put in the show notes that you, um, you know, you talk about those content writers? Oh, well, you know, probably Chet Holmes. Yeah. He's a sales guy and yeah. his waterfall I still use to this day. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It still works. After millions of records, it's still the right <laughs> one. And very briefly, I can tell you what that is. It's out of every hundred records, there are three record, three people who are ready to buy now. Yep. There are seven people who could be easily persuaded, but they, you have some work to do. So out of 100 people, 10 are what inbound marketing, the whole inbound era, and that 
that is only the people that they really reach, the people ready to go now and yep. the people who are aware of us are interested. Yep. There's 90 other people <laughs> yep. that we still have to go after. And as Chet said, there's 30 people who don't really want your product. They know they don't want it, but there's a full 60 who need to be convinced. Yep. And that is what prospecting is all about. Hitting those 60 people and getting them moved down to the three and then the seven with more predictability. So <laughs> he's, a, he's a great guy. He's one of my favorite people. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And if I'll come coming to the end, but before I get there, if you could go back in time and do it all over again, what's mm -hmm. one thing you would do differently? I think I wouldn't have been as worried that I needed to be the consummate sales professional in terms of the skills. Yep. I think uh, authenticity trumps yeah. everything else. Yeah. And so I, I, I learned that the hard way of trying to be someone I wasn't or articulating this, the value prop in a way that wasn't authentic to who I am. And once I got through that, and realize that I am a pleasantly persistent person <laughs> and that's who I am. Yeah. So embrace it, you know. So I think be true to yourself in so many ways is sales is is to, to be successful in sales is to be yourself. Yeah, fantastic. Well, this has been awesome and uh, thank you very much for, for coming on. Are you able to share with us where our listeners can learn more about you, um, your books, websites, and, and also I'll put all that in the show notes as well. Oh, sure. Uh, com is my website yep. and it's got, I also do a podcast and I'm, I think I'm on episode 120 or something. So yeah, it's 121. It's, yeah, I think it is. Hang on. 121. Yeah. Ah, so it's still, it's climbing. Um, so hop over there and there's a lot of good information. Also, I have a complimentary classes that I put out on a site called predictableedu.com. And what I've done there is I've put some classes to complement both books, actually. Uh, this assessment class that we were talking about, about total addressable market and how yep. to drill down to actually assess where you are in preparing for a predictable prospecting system. That class is out there and there's two others that uh, if you want to get a sense for how I teach, so that's a great place to go and, and learn that way. Workbooks for everything, everything's video taught. And then I put my office hours there and you can reach it. If you're an outbound person, I expect you to reach out to yeah. me via the phone or email or <laughs> say hi. Yeah, oh, this has been fantastic. So we'll make mention of all that and especially your podcast because it's great. Um, and for those listeners, we've had a few Aussies on there the last, um, you know, the last two episodes, I think. Um, so that's yes. been really exciting. And there's, you know, some right. legends on there of Jeb Blunt and um, Anthony and, and, and a number of other awesome thought leaders. So I really appreciate your time today and for, you know, taking the time to share with us some really important things when it comes to enterprise sales. So um, I've got a bunch of notes. Uh, I'm going to be um, going back to the book and and uh, and making some changes to, to my waterfall um, because I've really taken a lot out of this. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. I had a blast. It was great. Thanks. Wow. What an episode. How good is Mary Lou Tyler? What I loved about that episode is Mary Lou Tyler wasn't a salesperson to start with. Mary Lou Tyler comes from a completely different area. She was an engineer. So how could an engineer become so good at sales? Remember, 
It's not about what you do. It's about the actions that we take. It's about how we are mastering our craft, how we are learning, how we are observing, how we are improving our capability so we can be the best sales professionals we can be. What Mary Lou did was essentially look at sales and said, right, what does the process look like? What does a process need to be for me to have success? How can I make it as predictable as possible so that I can master the process and therefore master the art of sales or master the science of sales? So my challenge to you this week is, what does your process look like? How have you broken down the steps and made your process a predictable process? What are you doing to fill your pipeline with prospects that suit your target, that suit your product and service, that suit the problem that you help people solve? So my challenge is, what are you doing to build a predictable prospecting methodology so that you can be the best sales professional you can be?